it is it is um, my desire that even as we started last week with a series in in Mark titled "Seeing the Son of God," that as we continue, our eyes will continue to be open. That God will give us the um, will open the eyes of our hearts so that we may come to really, truly know him and walk with him uh, nearer and love him dearer. Um, Let us open up with a word of prayer and then we'll go to Mark chapter 1. Remember, we finished up last week um, in verse 11. Verse 11, um, we were supposed to look at verse 1 up until verse 15, but for the sake of time, and as I said, that I want us to, um, you know, briefly look at these, um, you know, uh, narratives um, without laboring for um, over, you know, an hour um, on it, so that we, we may remember and, and have ample opportunity to meditate on what we hear and be able to recall it. Let me read first from Mark chapter 1. I'm going to read again verse 1 up until verse 15. And um, we still, um, with special focus, obviously, on verses 12 to verse 15, which will be an area that we look at this morning. Mark chapter 1. I read from the ESV, follow me as we hear God's word. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And a priest saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals are not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being opened And the spirit descending on him like a dove and a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. The spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was in the with the wild animals and angels, and the angels were ministering to him. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. This is God's word. Let us pray. 
Indeed, Lord, it is your word. When we think about how you have loved us and shown your love, ultimately in sending your son, Jesus Christ, to be a substitute on our behalf, how you have loved us, that you did not leave us to figure it all out by ourselves, but you gave us your word. May your word inform our understanding of who you are. May your word inform our worship, inform how we relate to one another. In Jesus' blessed name we pray. Amen. I think you've already noticed that one of the the key words in the Gospel of Mark is if you've been reading through the Gospel of Mark, and even if we just read right now, is the word immediately. The word immediately keeps coming out there, and it's it's something that shows us that unlike Matthew or Luke, who tell the narratives of the story of Jesus um, extensively, who go into detail, Mark hardly goes into detail. Have you noticed how he gives the story of of, of Jesus when he comes to be baptized by um, John the Baptist? If you compare it to Matthew, the, the story in Matthew chapter 4, you will realize, in chapter, Matthew chapter 3, you will realize that it's, it's different and it's, it's less detailed here in Mark. If you look at, again, the story of Jesus, as we will look at it this morning, of him being in the wilderness and being tempted by Satan, he hardly even goes into, um, you know, the, 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 the conversation that, the encounter that Jesus had with the devil. Mark, interestingly, as I've read some of the introductions from different theologians, Mark, interestingly, is writing to also show us Jesus as a teacher. But as you read the Gospel of Mark, he hardly even tells us what his teaching is. So these stories function as instructional. He he teaches through his actions as well. So, so, so as, as, as we will be studying through Mark, and I hope in your personal um, time as well, in your devotions as you read through Mark, you will notice that Mark um, concentrates a lot on different stories in the life of Jesus, right? Hardly focusing on the words of Jesus. And these are instructional. These are supposed to teach us. I read an article titled um, The Church's Greatest Need. In fact, it was posted this week, I think on Wednesday, um, by uh, the Southern uh, Baptist Theological Seminary. The article is by theologian Stephen Willem. Um, I think it resonates with what Mark has in mind when he opens us, uh, uh, up his gospel account. Uh, according to Willem, that the church's greatest need is an accurate understanding of who Jesus Christ is. Listen to what he says in, in, in that article. He says, there is no greater need for the church today than to think rightly about Jesus. 
biblically and theologically. The life and health of the church depends on a correct Christology. Christology is the study of Christ. Rooted and grounded in an accurate theology proper. Yet not merely a Christology confessed, listen to this, not merely a a Christology confessed, but one that leads us to faith, trust, and confidence in our Lord Jesus and to an entire life lived in adoration, praise, and obedience to the triune God. In other words, our understanding of Christ should not just be head knowledge, but the head knowledge must flow to the heart. And as it flows to the heart, it must flow to the hands, our actions. It must transform our lives holistically. The article is adapted from his book, The Person of Christ, an introduction. He comments in the book, it's a a small book, um, I think about 200 pages or, or less. He comments in the book on why it is important to rightly understand who Jesus is. And this is what he says in one line. He says, if Jesus' identity is misunderstood, inevitably Jesus' exclusive work will also be compromised. When we understand, well, when we misunderstand the identity of Jesus, we will also misunderstand his work. And last week we, we saw that Mark takes on the role of a faithful attorney, right? Advocate. He takes the role of a, of a skillful advocate in order to prove to us that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. He calls five witnesses to testify to the identity of Jesus Christ. We, we looked at three last week. Today we'll, we'll consider the last two, but let me remind you of, of these witnesses that Mark calls. Remember first, the first witness that he calls to the stand is the scriptures. The, the scriptures uh, testify of the fact that Jesus is the promised Messiah. He is the Lord. This idea of Jesus as the Lord is connected uh, clearly with um, um, Malachi chapter 1 where Jesus is called God. Where the one whose way is being prepared for is God. And again, in Isaiah, where Isaiah refers to Yahweh, whose way is being prepared. The second witness that is called to the stand is John the Baptist. Remember John the Baptist as he, he, he appears on the scene. He is one who is, um, um, you know, in the steps of Elijah, he is preparing the way of the Lord. And not only that, but the way he speaks about Jesus Christ, he speaks about Jesus Christ as the preeminent one, as the supreme one. He says, the straps of whose sandals I am unworthy to stoop down and untie. He shows us the fact that Jesus Christ is not just any prophet. He is the prophet. He's not just any priest. He is the priest. He's not just any king. He is the king. He is the supreme one, the ultimate one. We see as well as John baptizes him, the third witness appears, right? 
who is God the Father. God uh, uh, the Father appears on the scene to testify about Jesus Christ. And what does, what does he say when Jesus Christ comes out of the water? This is my son in whom I am well pleased. I read so much about that. I probably will write an article um, for our uh, church um, website. There are articles that that are being posted if you go to our website. So um, just that idea of Jesus, of God saying, "This is my son, in whom I am well pleased." Fourthly, and uh, the, 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 the we will look at um, today is that he calls Satan to the stand, and finally he calls Jesus himself to testify. Let us look at the fourth witness, shall we? This is Satan. This is in verses 12 to verse 13. Let us read verse 12 to verse 13. The Spirit immediately drove Jesus out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan, and he was with him, and he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Uh, the Spirit drove Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. And now, now, Satan doesn't actually here take the stand to speak. Uh, Mark doesn't focus on the words of, of, of Satan as Matthew does, right? When there's this dialogue between Jesus and Satan, uh, and Satan is tempting Jesus in three ways, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the a boastful pride of life. Here, Mark doesn't focus on that dialogue, but he tells us enough information that Jesus Christ is being tempted by Satan. Satan obviously doesn't declare that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, but later on we see that uh, that, that much will be said. When Jesus encounters the demonic spirits, what do they say? You are the Son of God, especially when you look at Mark chapter 3, verse 11, right? So we know that Satan knows Jesus is the Christ. He knows Jesus is the Christ, but more, 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 more importantly, the picture we have of Satan in verses 12 to 13 sets the stage for Jesus' ministry that begins in verses 14 and verse 15. We've already seen that Jesus came to deal with our sins and he, he does this by giving his life as a ransom for many. But, but Jesus' mission also involves dealing with Satan. Mark wants to know, to know this um, at the beginning of his gospel. He, he wants us to, to have this in our minds. As we know, um, from the other gospel, D Jesus doesn't fall to Satan's temptation. But that's not the point that Mark wants to make. In Mark, the temptation of Jesus is meant to set the stage for the battle going on behind the scenes. Satan is opposed to Jesus and his powerful reign as, as king. As we will see in verses 14 to verse 15, the kingdom of God is at hand. And part of Jesus' work as king is driving back the, 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 the work of Satan and his demons. You see, the fact that the kingdom of God is at hand, it upsets the demonic world. 
it upsets the it upsets Satan and his demons. The fact that his coming is met by satanic opposition tells us that even the demonic forces understand the significance of what Christ is about to do for the human race. Jesus comments, uh, John comments in 1 John chapter 3 verse 8 saying, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So, so the devil knows that Jesus has come to destroy his works. The kingdom of God is at hand and the kingdom of God will not share the reign. When the kingdom of God comes, all other kingdoms bow. The cross, in other words, will be a game changer. And the devil tries by any means to stop Jesus and to stop that from happening. Because, just think about it. Just think about it. In order for Jesus to make the perfect sacrifice, he has to be a perfect, spotless lamb of God. When, when the, the Israelites came to the priest in the Old Testament for a sacrifice to be made on their part, a sin offering, they, one of the requirements was for them to bring a spotless lamb. And as they come, the, 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 the high priest will take time to inspect the spotless lamb, the lamb to see if it's spotless. And if it has anything that makes it unclean, if it has a, 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 a scar, for, 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 for example, it is not worthy to be sacrificed on behalf of the individual who brought it. Remember, um, I'm fast forwarding now. It's like I'm, you know, with the remote. I'm just trying to show you the end as, as we understand the beginning. Jesus is taken before Pontius Pilate, right? And Pontius Pilate questions him and he says, I find what? No fault in this man. Let's go back. Satan, in this temptation, wants to undermine God's goal of redeeming humanity by causing Jesus to sin. And if he sins, he's no longer a spotless lamb. Does that make sense? And if he's no longer a spotless lamb, the sacrifice that he makes on the cross is no longer a perfect sacrifice not being received in the presence of God. Obviously, there are many connections as well here with this temptation, especially the connection between um, Adam, the first Adam, and now Jesus Christ being the second Adam. But when Satan appears the first time as a cunning serpent, he tempts Eve. Obviously, it's, it's Eve who first dialogues with the devil but you will notice that if you read carefully the bible says adam was that right there with him he was not working in the garden 
He was not somewhere. He was listening to the conversation. And he was quiet, not doing anything. He heard everything. He saw the wife pick the fruit. He saw the wife eat the fruit. And he ate as well. So the, 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 the Satan undermined uh, Adam and his blamelessness. Now the second Adam, Jesus Christ, who comes as a sacrifice for our sins, who comes to make, uh, 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 to, to make atonement on our behalf, also faces the same thing. But notice this, brothers and sisters, that Adam and Eve were in the garden where there was food and nourishment, where there was uh, um, shade, where there was a cool breeze, where there was water flowing, four kinds of rivers, right? I'm not sure if I'm explaining that correct, but his situation is different from that of Jesus. Jesus' situation in his temptation is much, much worse. He's hungry. He's tired. The sun is probably also, you know, one of the things that are just making the situation worse. He's in the desert. There's no water. His situation is far, far worse. But he triumphs. Right? Satan tries to discredit and disqualify him, but his triumph, his triumph, brothers and sisters, proves that he is the redeemer fit for the task of giving his life as a ransom for his people. He is fit. He is fit as a ransom. Right? We've already seen that Jesus came to deal with our sins, and he does so by giving his life as a ransom for, for many. So the temptation of Jesus implies that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And it also teaches us that Jesus saves us from sin and Satan. The, the, the fact that his coming is being opposed is that indication. Right? So Satan is a reluctant witness. But yet, the truth is clear. Jesus is the Son of God. Not only that, but Mark now calls the last witness. I don't know much about um, South African courts. Unfortunately, television has messed up with our minds, right? We know so much about America and American um, you know, um, court systems. The last witness comes to the stand this is the one who's being interrogated himself, and it's about him. Mark calls this last witness to the stand, and this last witness is Jesus. Verse 14 and verse 15. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. In verse 14 it says, 
And now John was arrested. Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. Uh, notice here what Mark does. He points back to the first words in the opening of his gospel account. At the beginning we are told this is about the gospel. The gospel is about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. At the beginning, Jesus, and, and, and at the end here, Jesus proclaims this gospel. Right? Jesus proclaims it. Mark, his advocate, asks Jesus to speak for himself. And Jesus says the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. In other words, Jesus is the promised king. Right? The, the world is plunged into deep darkness. The kingdom of Satan wrecks havoc on humanity. Because of the sin of Adam and Eve, the ramifications are felt generation after generation, starting with their children. We see sibling rivalry, a son killing a brother, a brother killing a brother, right? And, and we continue to see uh, adultery, bloodshed, lying, thievery, uh, prostitution, uh, rape, and all these kinds of things, all because of one fruit. Plunging humanity into deep darkness and the prince of the power of the air reigning in the hearts of humanity. Now Jesus is announcing a kingdom that has come. And this kingdom it does not have, is not the, 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 you know, the throne is not vacant in this kingdom. It is the king himself who announces it. Essentially what Jesus is saying here is everything everybody said about me so far is true. I am the Christ, the son of God. That's who I am. I am the one the gospel is about. I am the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises about the Messiah. I am God. I mediate the presence of God. I am the humble king. And I came um, to, to save people from sin and Satan. I am the promised king. The kingdom of God is at hand. But he doesn't stop with the testimony. He takes the opportunity in front of the court to preach a sermon. In light of who Jesus is, he calls for a response. He is the Christ, the, the Son of God. Therefore, we need to repent and believe the gospel. So the, 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 there's two parts to the response Jesus calls for. The, the, the first part is repent. The second, believe the gospel. Now the question is, what does it mean to repent? The, the call to repent is the call to turn. 
Instead of marching to the beat of our own drum, we are called to turn to Jesus. Instead of rejecting the rule of God and living our own way in sin, we are called to submit to the rule of Christ and his kingdom. We, we have to see our sin clearly and then turn from it. And this is not just a one-time deal. Repentance is a lifelong process. Oftentimes, we think of repentance as something that needs to be done by unbelievers, right? It's, it's like repentance is this door that you get into the house. You must, you, there's one door to get into the house. And when unbelievers get into this door through repentance, we think that that is it. And, and it is true. Unbelievers truly need to repent. Unbelievers need to turn away from sin, draw near to Christ as his grace works in their hearts both to will and to work for his good pleasure. But we are also called to live a life of repentance. A life of actively turning away from sin daily and turning to God. Uh, this is out of an understanding that sin is an enemy that never rests. But God, when he talks to uh, Cain in Genesis chapter 4, remember when Cain is contemplating this Medras plan, all because his brother's sacrifice was received, because his brother offered it in faith, as the writer of Hebrews comments on that. Cain, as he contemplate and this sin is eating away at his soul, God says to him, sin is crouching at your door. He pictures sin as a ferocious animal ready to devour. Sin is not child's play, beloved. Sin destroys. Sin wrecks havoc. Sin promises you enjoyment, but it doesn't tell you that terms and conditions apply. Sin comes wearing a costume. Sin wears a costume. It doesn't show you the bones that are inside. It doesn't show you the ugliness that is inside. It wears a costume that presents itself as something that is attractive, but when it has caught you, you find yourself in the clashes of a ferocious animal ready to devour you. We need to understand that sin never rests. With this realization, we acknowledge that the best place for us as believers is the nearness of God, isn't it? That the best place is the nearness of God. Haven't you noticed that what sin does, the first thing it wants to uh, draw you away from God? Because it realizes that its power immediately breaks in the presence of God. 
It draws you away from prayer, away from the word of God, away from fellowship. As the singer wisely puts it, temptations lose their power when thou art near. Isn't that supposed to be our prayer, dear brothers and sisters? I need thee, oh, I need thee. Hear what J.C. Riley says, that Anglican bishop of old. He says, we need not wonder at this. If we consider the necessities of human nature, all of us are by nature born in sin and are children of wrath and all need to repent, turn to God and be born again if we want to see the kingdom of God. All of us are by nature guilty and condemned before God and all must flee to the hope set before us in the gospel and believe in it. If we want to be saved, all of us, once remorseful, daily needs stirring up to deeper repentance. All of us, though believing, need constant exhortation to increased faith. I believe, but help my unbelief. All of us. So the first part of the response Jesus calls for is repentance. But that's not all. He also called to turn to what Christ and believe the gospel that is about him. What does it mean to believe the gospel? We, we, first of all, we need to believe that the gospel teaches about Jesus. That the gospel teaches us who Jesus is and what he has done for us. And we've seen he's the Christ, right? He's the Messiah, the Son of God. He is God. In fact, he's God incarnate. We discussed this during the Bible study um, during the week. This coming um, Thursday, we'll look at the work of Christ. We were looking at the person of Christ. And Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God, God incarnate, mediates the presence of God. It's only through Christ that we can have a relationship with God. He is the humble king. And let there be no mistake, he is the king. But he's also the lamp who was slain, the one who laid down his life for our sins. And isn't that amazing? But not only that, he also conquered Satan through his death and resurrection. The gospel is about Jesus. It's about who he is, right? It's about what he has done for us. And it has, it, has, it has immense relevance for our lives. Without Jesus, we can't know God. Without Jesus, we are lost in sin. In the morning when I rise, in the morning when I rise, give me Jesus. When I'm alone, when I'm alone, give me Jesus, when I die, when I die, give me Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Without Jesus, 
Satan will still have dominion over this world and sickness and death will still reign. But because of Jesus, we can have salvation. We can know God. We can have forgiveness of our sins and Satan is defeated. He, 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 the only appropriate response to this good news is to turn from our sin and to turn toward Jesus in faith. But, but, but the call to believe the gospel is, is not merely an intellectual call, is it? The, the call to believe the gospel is the call to trust Jesus. No, not simply to believe with our head that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, but to daily trust him for life and salvation. True faith involves trust and commitment to Christ. There are a lot of people in the church who would agree in their head that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. There are a lot of people in the church who would agree in their head that Jesus laid down his life for our sins and, and has defeated Satan. But is there ongoing evidence in your life of turning from sin and trusting in Christ in faith? True belief in the gospel is not merely intellectual. It's a call to trust Christ. Let me conclude by saying this. You see, every individual has two theologies. There is believed theology and there is um, lived theology. The, 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 the Bible calls us to have our believed theology and our lived theology match, right? Our believed theology must pour out and give us the ability to live as Christians. But oftentimes we are people that have this dichotomy, this, this divide in our lives. We believe something, but we live as though it is not true. Theologians call this practical atheism. You believe that God is there in your mind, but you live as though he is not omniscient, he's not all-knowing, he's not omnipotent, he's not all-powerful, he's not omnipresent, he's not present everywhere at the same time. You live as though he is not there. Practical atheism. Practical atheism is worse than atheism itself. Atheism is the belief that there is no God. Practical atheism is the belief that there is God but the life as if he's not there. At least atheism acknowledges from the beginning. Practical atheism is self-deception. Our believed theology must match our lived theology. Mark presents these, these witnesses to us. He essentially says to us, the scripture says he is the Christ. John the Baptist sees him as the Christ. God the Father says, this is my son. Satan knows that he is the son of God. And Jesus Christ says, they are all telling the truth. The question this morning, what about you? What about you? Who is Jesus? Is Jesus just 
living in your intellect but not in your heart and actions who is Jesus have you believed the gospel have you turned away from your sin repented of sin and turned to Christ are you currently turning away from your sin daily who is Jesus the only way we can know who Jesus is is by going to the Bible believing that living that amen let's pray Lord thank you for the gospel that reminds us that the kingdom of God is at hand a king who qualifies to redeem his people and make them citizens of the kingdom has come we thank you lord we pray that our lives will be marked by repentance living for you for those who do not know you lord who have not bowed to you as king we pray that you conquer their hearts this morning in jesus blessed name we pray amen